believed something that ultimately turned out to be untrue. When I was a kid, I thought daddy longlegs were the most venomous spider and that we were only safe because they couldn't bite us with their tiny fangs. Wrong, but it sounded cool. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Joining me today to talk about why we believe what we believe, how misinformation spreads, and of course, the idea of fake news are Kaylin O'Connor, Associate Professor of Logic and Philosophy of Science, and James Owen Weatherall, Professor of Logic and Philosophy of Science, both at University of California, Irvine. Together, they've written The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread. Kaylin, James, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Hi. Why is uh, fake news, which I mentioned at the top there, why is it so effective? Uh, Why do we fall for things that seem so outrageous? Well, one of the things that we really point out in our book is that Trusting other people and the things other people tell us is something we do all the time and, in fact, is a, it's a really powerful thing that humans do. I mean, we couldn't have culture if we didn't spread knowledge from person to person and if we didn't trust the things other people tell us. So this is just part of our lives. And so we're not really designed to handle fake news in a way. We're designed to pass information from person to person. And when people tell us something false, we often do just the same thing as we would do with something true. And so how is it then um, – and I'm sure this has changed uh, throughout history. But how is it then that a false belief can start with one person and then spread to a larger group? And I'm thinking of even something um, like a cult where one person starts it and then all these people sort of buy into that. How does something like that get started? Well, you know, I, I think it starts just – you know, people saying stuff, people making making claims, and other people believing them. I mean, as as Kaylin said, you know, we're we're inclined to trust one another. This is how you know one of the the powerful things about human culture, about human society, is our ability to uh, learn from one another, to communicate with one another, and to gain information from other people's experience. And so, when someone reports experience to us, when someone reports, oh, you know this happened to me, or this is a thing that I know that, you know, maybe you can't test so easily, or maybe isn't part of your experience directly, you know, it's really beneficial to us, usually to think, okay, well, I can, I can learn from this, I'm not going to make the same mistakes that that other person made. You know, of course, this then can be manipulated, you mentioned cults, in many cases, what what happens with a a cult, as as I understand it, is you have some uh, very personable, very uh, attractive personality that exerts influence over other people just because they, they seem very compelling. And when they make, uh, they make claims, they make assertions, uh, people want to, to believe them. So you guys have uh, quite a few examples in your book about uh, some of the, the, uh, the false or misinformation that's been spread throughout history. What is, what is uh, one of the craziest or sort of most outrageous uh, things you guys have come across that a group of people have believed? Well, I, I, think, I think our favorite is probably the one we start the book with, which is the, um, the vegetable <laughs> lamb. Right. And so this is beginning in uh, the, the 13th century. You start seeing in 
botany books, you know, works of natural philosophy in Europe, uh, records of the existence of lambs that grow on trees. These are supposed to exist somewhere in the east. It gets called the vegetable lamb of Tartary. But across works of, uh, of natural philosophy, for centuries, you see drawings of lambs with stems and roots in the ground, uh, of lambs that are growing inside pods that are, you know, fruits on a, on a tree. Uh, and all, all indications are that the people who were writing about these things believe that they were every bit as real as roses or oak trees. This is just one of the kinds of plants that you can find in the world. And these are, these are flesh and blood lambs, like an actual tiny miniature little lamb growing in these things, right? It was supposed to be a real lamb. Yeah, I mean, the, the first person who wrote about them actually re- recorded having personally eaten their flesh <laughs> and that it was wonderful. <laughs> That's right. We write about some uh, personal accounts of skeptics who heard from so many people of credence that the vegetable lamb was real, that they knew someone who had seen it, that they knew someone who had eaten it, that eventually they come to say, okay, it's got to be true. (laughs) What is the the problem of induction? So this is an old problem identified by philosophers. And the idea is that when it comes to most of the kinds of knowledge that we have, We can never be absolutely certain about whether we're right or wrong. So a really classic example is suppose I say the sun's going to rise tomorrow morning. And you say, well, how do you know that? I could give you a lot of reasons to think so. Well, it's risen every day in the past. I know various things about the sun and the earth and how space works. But it's totally possible that before tomorrow morning, something happens. You know, the sun explodes or Earth gets knocked by an asteroid, and in fact, the sun doesn't rise. So even this thing about which we should be very, very certain, we're not ever absolutely entirely certain. And some people have thought that this is maybe a problem for knowledge, that we never, never really know something. One of the points we make in the book is that when it comes to knowledge, we're not actually looking for that kind of certainty. In fact, we're looking for just a strong enough belief to help us navigate the world around us successfully. You talk about in the book, uh, there's quite a few examples of um, companies using sort of this idea that you can never fully know anything to their benefit when they're presented with um, science that says maybe their product's harmful. Um, One of the examples was uh, CFCs and uh, DuPont. Yeah, sure. So, you know, CFCs were a, you know, a, a miracle product, right? These were, um, they were refrigerants that were uh, safe, I mean, safe for, for humans, that basically uh, ushered in an age of refrigeration and, and uh, air conditioning and, and so on. And they were used in aerosols. They were, they were used all over the place. And, and it turned out that they had uh, an unexpected environmental risk. Uh, they uh, depleted ozone in the upper atmosphere. And this was something that was realized in the, the late 1970s. People thought, okay, this is obviously a big problem. We need a regulatory framework. And in fact, the regulatory framework was created to try to control the manufacture and use of, of CFCs. But then it turned out that they were much more effective at depleting ozone in, in some environments than people realized, in particular in, uh, over the South Pole. 
they were much more effective than was expected, leading to the creation of this ozone hole. Now, in this particular instance, there was an enormous amount of evidence. It was completely well understood how CFCs depleted ozone. There were measurements taken of ozone levels. The ozone hole was measured in multiple different ways. You know, it was a very, very clear case that led virtually everyone on both sides of the political aisle to conclude we really need to do something about CFCs. And in fact, CFCs have been banned worldwide since soon after that, you know, 19, uh, the late 1980s. Even as all this was happening, though, uh, the then chairman of DuPont sent a letter to the Senate saying, well, there's a lot of evidence, but you can never be really certain that it's CFCs that are, are causing this. And it would be premature to uh, implement any kind of regulatory change uh, on the basis of this evidence. And what's ironic here is that the evidence was as strong as it could possibly be. And yet, of course, it was true that it wasn't absolutely definitive and we could never be perfectly sure. But if the response is, well, it's premature then, well, it's always going to be premature to you know, implement any kind of regulatory change in response to any kind of public health disaster. Uh, which seems like just obviously the wrong way of thinking about policymaking. And it sounds very similar to another example uh, you both talk about, which is um, the big tobacco companies when it was shown that cigarettes caused cancer. Um, they sort of embarked on the same idea of let's fight this with doubt. That's right. So there's this wonderful book, Merchants of Doubt, by these historians of science, Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway, where they painstakingly document this case where what tobacco companies did, I mean, they knew they would never be able to show that tobacco was safe using science. That wasn't going to be possible. But they could just keep people from doubting that it was really certain that tobacco was causing cancer. And then they managed to do this for decades. And there are a lot of techniques that they used. So for example, they would um, fund science into other possible causes of lung cancer, things like asbestos, which if they can show asbestos causes lung cancer, maybe that creates this kind of further doubt that in fact, tobacco smoking is dangerous. And they would take studies where it happened, you know, whatever study happened to show no link between tobacco smoking and cancer and widely publicize these studies to send them to journalists, to politicians, uh, policymakers of all sorts to doctors to keep this kind of possibility that tobacco smoking was safe, just viable for longer than it ever should have been, given the evidence that existed. And with something like that, I mean, obviously, uh, cigarettes are, are highly addictive. Do Are people more um, likely to believe it because they want to believe it? Or is it just that they're presented with this fake information and it's it's convincing? Well, I, I think it's I think it's both, really. I, you know, there are a few things to say. One is that these sorts of strategies are particularly effective in uh, certain media and legal frameworks. So, for instance, one of the reasons why it was so important to the tobacco industry to have research on the cancer-causing effectiveness of asbestos was that they could then trot out, and they did do this, trot out expert witnesses in court cases to basically give doubt, right? Give, give you know, another plausible explanation of what may have happened in particular cases or what may be responsible to, for some, you know, epidemiological changes in lung cancer rates that deflect attention. 
Um, and, you know, in, in that particular kind of context where you can have expert witnesses who cast doubt on some other expert witnesses' claims or who are presenting perfectly true things that are, you know, just spurious for the, the purposes at hand, the strategy can be, can be very effective. It's also in, you know, the certain media context, you know, where, where journalists are, are expected to present multiple sides of an issue. The tobacco uh, industry can say, look, we have experts who defend this other side of things, who def- you know, have their own research and their research shows these other things and these things are important and our perspective matters. You're being biased if you don't include what we say. You create an environment where uh, people are presenting, you know, where, where journalists are presenting this information as if there are ongoing controversies, as if things are, are unsettled or uncertain, uh, as if both sides have essentially equal amounts of evidence supporting them, when in fact there's an enormous disparity and one side has far more evidence uh, in support of its position than, than the other side. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think it's certainly true that there's a certain amount of, well, I smoke, I don't want to stop smoking, and so I'm going to be skeptical about anything that says that smoking isn't healthy for me. But it's also, I think, a, a really legitimate position to find yourself in where you're just confused, where you're being flooded with information that does seem to suggest uncertainty, to suggest that even the experts don't agree, that no one really knows what they're talking about. Um, and under those circumstances, I, I don't think that it's you know, motivated reasoning or, or an example of you just believing whatever it is that you want to believe because the information you're being presented with is intentionally confused and confusing. So after um, some of the first very clear evidence was reaching the public about the dangers of tobacco, people actually were paying attention to that evidence despite the fact that there might be real reasons that they didn't want to. So uh, cigarette sales started dropping quarter after quarter after a few of these kind of key articles were published. And then through the efforts of tobacco companies, they managed to reverse that trend by creating this doubt and presenting confounding evidence to the public. So it seems like there's quite a a leap between this, you know, what we talked about earlier, the vegetable lamb, which is you know maybe a harmless sort of uh, bit of misinformation, um, and this idea that saying having big tobacco companies say that cigarettes don't cause cancer. How has something like capitalism, which seems to be the root of of why these companies might be doing what they're doing. How has that sort of changed the, the, the way misinformation happens? Well, so one thing that's important to think about in a capitalist society, but isn't unique to capitalist society, is, is that there are a lot of people out there who have reasons to try to control what other people think. Um, I say this isn't unique because, of course, propaganda dates back well before capitalism when, for example, religious groups or other political groups would be trying to control what people think. Now there aren't just political and religious groups. There's also all sorts of companies trying to control what we think. There's other uh, foreign nations trying to control what we think. Uh, And so there are just more people who are trying to take advantage of the ways that we share information with each other and form our beliefs to shape public opinion. Yeah. And I mean, that brings up a good point. We're bombarded with all this information. And obviously now with the internet, there's, there's 
a lot more to ingest. Um, how skeptical should we be in our daily lives, um, especially knowing people are, you know, probably too busy to fact check every single piece of information that they come across in a day? Um, is there a healthy level of skepticism and is there too much or too little? So one um, <laughs> one sort of interesting trade-off is coming out from what you're saying, which is something like this. If you wanted to totally maximize the number of true beliefs that you had, you should trust everything that anyone ever tells you because then every belief you're told that's true, you'll believe it. If you want to minimize the number of false beliefs you have, you should be 100% skeptical and never believe anything. Uh, (laughs) Of course, we want something that does both, but then that's very difficult because when people share bits of data or evidence or ideas with you, you have to somehow decide, do I trust this one or do I don't trust this one? There are all sorts of ways that we go about doing this. So for example, we take into account who shared the idea or the belief with us. Do we trust them? Do we think they're good at gathering beliefs? Or if this is coming from the media, maybe what source did this come from? We might consider, okay, this person who told us this, have they told us true things in the past? Do they believe other things that I think are true? Are they like me or not like me in some ways? Um, So we take all these things into account. As far as what we should take into account, well, it's become clear recently that we're now in this kind of environment, the social media environment, where there are a lot of people who have reasons to try to get us to believe false things, who are very savvy at doing so, and who are trying to control us by using savvy techniques to share these false beliefs with us. This means that probably on some level we need to dial up our level of skepticism and get more savvy ourselves at protecting ourselves from false beliefs. Yeah, I mean, are there are there techniques? You you both are are probably more aware of of the fact that these things exist, you know, from researching and and uh, from your work. What what do you both do um, in your daily lives to sort of combat this spread of false information? Is there anything that you you can offer to us <laughs> that are less in the know? Well, there are certainly just simple things like using trusted media sources, ones that have been verified, ones that have reason not to print falsehoods. So things like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, these places where people have fact checkers and there's pressure on them to print postings. So trust those media sources rather than ones that you don't know who's creating the media. That's a really important thing to do. Uh, Another thing is that when you're presented with data that you really like, (laughs) that seems to kind of fit your beliefs really well, to take a moment there and just go check. Just see if you can fact check whatever is being presented to you. Those Those are things I do. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, right, we're, when we see something that we already sort of think is probably true, we, we tend, I tend to believe it more. Um, are there examples of times when somebody's effectively been able to, um, to persuade or be persuaded that something that they, that's obviously not true isn't true after they've already sort of got it ingrained? 
oh, I think people change their mind about false beliefs all the time. I mean, I'll give an example. You mentioned at the beginning that uh, daddy long legs aren't poisonous. <laughs> I have to admit, I had been holding that one since childhood. <laughs> oh, their tiny mouths can't bite you. <laughs> right. Yep. So I just changed my mind about that. Uh, it gets much trickier when we talk about beliefs that have become polarized. So one thing we discuss a lot in the book are these beliefs like, is climate change real? Uh, do gun control measures work? Um, that have become polarized often along political lines and that become very controversial and very enmeshed with people's social identities and their social group membership. In cases like that, it can be much harder to get people to change their minds. Yeah. And what is it about politics? Because, yes, like you said, the daddy long legs example is is a harmless example. The vegetable ant may be a harmless example. When it gets political, though, that seems to be when things get trickier. Obviously, the ramifications of it are that policy will be made. But what is it about us as an individual that we tend to stick to it even more when it becomes a political issue? Well, you know, I, I think one striking feature about the kinds of cases that we think of as political is that some of them at least weren't always political and don't need to be political. In some sense, whether or not you know anthropogenic climate change is occurring is a scientific fact no different from whether or not uh, daddy long legs have the, the most virulent venom in, <laughs> in the animal kingdom. Uh, it's either true or it's not. Uh, you know, it's a bit harder to sort out the climate change case, kind of an understatement, but um, it, it, it's the same kind of statement. The fact that it's political has to do with, you know, the details of recent history over the last 30 or 40 years. And the fact that there isn't a big daddy long legs lobby out there who is trying to protect economic interests, you know, against people coming to to believe some things that could lead them to favor policies that, that are against that group's economic interest. You know, climate change wasn't a particularly controversial issue, even as recently as uh, the late 1980s, you really begin to see it becoming a uh, major political divide uh, during the George H.W. Bush administration. And so he ran on a, a environmentalist platform and was convinced during his presidency that some of the policies he proposed on the campaign trail were perhaps based on premature science and that, that it wasn't yet clear that it was carbon emissions that were causing climate change as opposed to natural uh, events. Now, you know, it was reasonable back then to think the science isn't completely settled. There, there, was, there, was, very, there was strong evidence already um, but there were many scientists, I think, uh, in the late 1980s and early 1990s who remain skeptical. That has become less and less true, right? At this point, there are virtually no climate scientists who are skeptical that uh, carbon emissions are playing a major causal role in, in climate change. And so what's happened here is that somehow uh, an issue that wasn't originally political has both become political, even as uh, the evidence has gotten, gotten stronger and stronger. And so I think what we need to think about isn't the difference between 
political issues, which are you know we understand as somehow a a predefined set of issues and non-political ones, but rather how any sort of matter of fact, any kind of scientific matter of fact, can come to be political. Do you both see a a light at the end of the tunnel? Because at the end of the book, you talk a bit about how you know. It's it's hard to have a democracy, and this is obviously a, a current news cycle and an ongoing news cycle topic. How can democracy survive fake news, or how can democracy democracy survive Russian interference in into our elections and things like this? Do you both see a light at the end of the tunnel on this? Uh, do you do you think that in the end, typically based on the things you've researched, does truth win out in the end, or are we all doomed? <laughs> Well, so we make some suggestions for ways to help truth win out. I mean, the forces of (laughs) falsehood and false belief, these aren't going to go away. There are always going to be interest groups who want to control what we think and who have strong interest in keeping us from having true or accurate beliefs. So one thing we propose with that in mind is that we really need to be thinking of this as just an ongoing battle, something that we have to keep fighting, um, and where we should expect our opponents to not stop. So to give an example, we know that Russia interfered in the last election by using social media to try to control the beliefs and behaviors of the American public. In response to that, many social media sites changed their practices, implemented algorithms to detect bots or employed fact checkers. And then in response to that, we can already see that Russian operatives are adapting to what algorithms and practices have been employed and coming up with new ways to try to spread misinformation. So we suggest that we need to think of this as something to take really seriously and where we need to have people, teams of researchers engage in full, the full-time work of kind of protecting the minds of the U.S. public. So the thing that's optimistic is that if you look at the last, say, 500 years of political and media history, you see, I think, relationships between the development of new media, right? So, you know, from the printing press to, you know, sort of daily newspapers to radio to television, now the internet and social media, and the development of new ways to use those media to try to convince people of things, right? To try to try to get people to believe what you want them to believe. And in some cases, these have you know, they've been extremely effective, especially shortly after they're introduced, right? The ability suddenly for a political leader to address uh, millions of people at the same time in real time by voice. You could actually hear their, their voice in, you know, in your living room. Uh, was incredibly powerful in the early 20th century and I think was associated with major political changes uh, in, in Europe and, and in the United States. I mean, it's sort of a, an understatement, right? In some sense, this is radio played a, a crucial role in, in the rise of fascism in Europe. And so, you know, the optimistic thing, <laughs> it doesn't sound so optimistic <laughs> yet, but the optimistic thing is that these media have become less powerful over time. And the way in which that's happened is that we've developed a kind of immunity, I think, to how people can use, you know, how how other people can use these sorts of media to influence our beliefs. 
um, people just don't react to what they hear or you know see on television in the same way that they did you know when they were first experiencing these things. And I think that we're in a period now where there's a, a very rapid development of new media methods of using those new media to influence what people believe and people becoming aware of the ways in which these new media are influencing what they believe and and things that they thought were safe to trust um you know things that were shared by their friends on Facebook or uh by you know celebrities who they admire on Twitter um you know now many of us are 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 becoming a little bit more uh savvy that's the optimistic thing the the pessimistic thing is that at the end of the day uh, in a democratic society we vote on the basis of what we care about and what we believe. You know, when I say what we believe in part it's what we believe about matters of fact in the world, you know, what really is happening in this place or that place, what really is going to be the consequence of our continued participation in the war in Syria or continued burning of of uh coal and and power plants. Um and then what we care about. Right? And so, you know, maybe some things matter to us more than others. And um that's reflected in our voting behavior. Now, the problem with that is simply that what's true doesn't depend on what the majority of people think is true. Over the course of human history, we've developed some pretty reliable ways of figuring out what's true, but most of us in any, you know, about any particular issue aren't in a position to apply those methods, right? We can't do experiments, we can't gather data over many years, we can't carefully analyze everything on every problem that matters to us. And so somehow we end up having beliefs, voting on the basis of those beliefs without being in a position to really do the hard work that would be needed to be secure about those beliefs, to really, you know, have what we would need to have in order to to be confident in them. Uh and I think that this presents us with just a a basic tension where our beliefs contribute to our voting behavior and you know the 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 majority majority rules doesn't make sense as a way of evaluating uh what's true particularly in cases where the majority of people who are doing the voting aren't in the position to um verify these things uh on their own and so from the point of view of aggregating what we care about what what matters to people making sure that different communities of people get represented in a political system democracy makes i think an enormous amount of sense but from the point of view of figuring out what's true uh it it isn't clear to me that majority rules is a, a particularly sensible a sensible way of going about things all right well the book is the misinformation age kaylin james thank you for coming on today thanks for having us oh thanks so much for having us that does it for this week's episode. You can find more at yalebooks.yale.edu or on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or your favorite app. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating.